Okay, now for those of you who watch the show regularly, you know that I, I don't have guests. I always do the show alone, and that's okay. <laughs> but yesterday, my producer said, Stuart, I can get you a guest that you would be insane not to have on the show. So I decided to take a risk, and in life you have to take risks. And today we have a guest. And his name is Michael J. I'll protect your anonymity. <laughs> Michael is a basketball player for a professional basketball team. Well, that's very good, Michael. You should be very proud of that. Well, thank you, Stuart. I am. Well, good for you. Good for you. Uh, Michael, I know there must be a lot of pressure for you to play very well. And I can imagine that a night before a game, you must lie awake thinking, I'm not good enough. Uh, everybody's better than me. I'm not going to score any points. I have no business playing this game. Well, not really. Michael, denial ain't just the river in Egypt. Well, I do sometimes get a little nervous before important basketball games. I thought so. And that's Okay. You're not alone. Believe me, I know what it's like laying there awake, all those tapes rolling. I'm a fraud. Tomorrow I'm going to be exposed for what I am, a big imposter. I just want to curl up and lay in bed all day and eat Fig Newton. Well, something like that. Right. Well, Michael, those negative thoughts are your critical inner voice saying those things to you, and I want to replace those negative thoughts with something positive, a daily affirmation. Affirmation? Yes. Now look in the mirror. Come on. Don't look at me. Only you can help you. That's it. <laughs> Say, hello, Michael. Hello, Michael. <laughs> I don't have to be a great basketball player. I don't have to be a great basketball player. I don't have to dribble the ball fast or throw the ball into the basket. I don't have to dribble the ball fast or throw the ball in the basket. Because all I have to do is be the best Michael I can be. All I have to do is be the best Michael I can be. Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Shall we close in prayer? Let's pray, everybody. Starting in the 1970s, we began to talk differently to our children. This was the rise of what was known as the self-esteem movement, and the way that we interacted with the next generation began to fundamentally change. We all of a sudden started believing that what was really holding people back was a lack of encouragement, a lack of verbal support. And so we started using as parents phrases like, you're special, you're amazing, you're so smart, you're wonderful, and we began heaping these praises upon the next generation and something that was so widespread, something that was so touted in every scientific journal, 
and yet it has become, over a course of a couple generations, an unmitigated disaster. And I want to tell you why. There's a woman by the name of Carol Dweck. She's considered to be the guru of motivation, and she started working with fifth graders in a great study that was done. She took the fifth graders into two groups, was working individually with the fifth graders, and while she was doing this, they began to work on some puzzles. So she'd sit down with a fifth grader from one of the two groups, and they would work on whatever the puzzle was. It was always the same puzzle. Regardless of how well that kid did on the puzzle, the instructions were always the same except for one phrase. To one group, she said, you're really smart. In other words, she would praise their intelligence. To another group, she would say, you worked really hard on that. She would praise their effort. And that one phrase made all the difference. Because the next phase of the experiment was regardless of how they did on that first puzzle, they were going to be asked to do another puzzle, and this time they could choose how hard that puzzle was. And what they found out is that when we praised kids for their intelligence, something they can do nothing about, when we praise them in that way, they almost always chose the next puzzle to be easy. And yet for the kids that were praised for their effort, those students almost always challenged themselves to take on a puzzle that was harder. And then the shocking thing, regardless of how they did on that puzzle, they took a third puzzle and the students that were in the praised for effort as opposed to ability category, they did 50% better categorically than the other students. In other words, what social scientists say, we are creating generation upon generation of what they refer to as praise junkies. And that these generations are growing up with a frame of reference unlike we've ever seen before. They're less intrinsically motivated, and in other words, they're relying upon others, encouraging them to do what needs to be done as opposed to it coming from within. They're more competitive towards others. Because of this frame of thinking, they are actually willing to tear others down in order to look better. They're more focused on image consciousness or not looking bad. And most importantly for today in this message, they are more afraid of failing. And so they choose the easier puzzle. They don't take the risk. They scale back from what they really could do. We're in the midst of a series of messages on fear. We're trying to learn how to heed the question that Jesus poses to us in that command, be not afraid. How can you live your life without fear? And we're talking about how it's an age of anxiety that we live in the midst of a meteor shower of what ifs. And so we're talking about what if I don't matter or what if things fall apart or what if I can't keep up or what if I don't have what it takes or what if I run out or what if that person isn't safe or what if I'm not included or what if this is the end. You and I live in this rising tide of anxiety. And today we're gonna focus on the fear of failure 
that you don't have or I don't have what it takes. And Jesus tells a parable, a direct story in Matthew chapter 25 about the fear of failure. And it goes like this. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take this bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You probably didn't read this story to your children at bedtime. <laughs> this is a difficult story. This story doesn't fit the frame of the self-esteem culture. Jesus says there's a guy that's gonna go on an extended trip he has a lot of wealth and responsibility, and so he is going to delegate to three people who work for him, each according to their wisdom, their experience, their abilities. He gives them a sum of money. Now, if you have heard this story before, which many of you have, you might be kind of confused by the more recent translation. You probably know of this as the parable of the talents a talent, the reason they translated this differently, a talent is easily misunderstood. A talent was 20 to 25 years worth of somebody's typical salary. This is a huge amount of money being given to someone. It's like saying, you know, that he hands someone $1 million, $5 million, or $10 million. It's like a hedge fund manager doling out investment portfolios to a variety of people and so one of the misunderstandings that we have with this story is that when we read it as modern people, we're like, oh, I feel sorry for the one talent guy. I mean, he only got one talent, the other guy got 10 talents. 
Now, all of these people have been given a huge amount of money based on their experience and their wisdom and their abilities. But the one talent guy, he takes what was given and instead of using it, he hides it. You will not be judged on what you do not have. You will be judged on what God gives you and whether or not you use it wisely. And so if one of the misunderstandings is is that we feel sorry for this person and think that they don't have enough, one of the things that we need to understand is the way that life really works. If I were to come alongside you when you were young and to put my hand on your shoulder and let's say you're a teenager and I say, you know what, you have such potential. There almost isn't anything more powerful and more encouraging than saying that to a young person. But fast forward and imagine that you are in a hospital bed and you are at the very end of your life. And as your pastor, I come to your hospital bed and I put my hand on your shoulder and I say, you had such potential. There isn't anything more condemning than that phrase. I have been with families and individuals at those end of life moments and I can tell you this, most people don't regret what they've done. They regret what they didn't do with what they had been given. So why does this one talent guy with this big bag of gold not use what he has? He actually tells us in verse 24 and 25, he says this, I knew, talking about his master, I knew that you were a harsh man And so I was afraid and I hid. This is the pattern all the way back since Genesis chapter three, afraid and hide, afraid and hide, afraid and hide. Have you taken what God has given to you, some sort of blessing, some sort of gift, some sort of riches, some sort of talent, And have you buried it somewhere so that it never sees the light of day? I will tell you whether or not you're using that talent. It is in what your view of God is. If you believe God to be harsh and view view him as stingy and as mean, you will live your life one way. And if you view God as generous and kind and loving, you will live your life the other way. That's the difference between the one talent guy and the two and the five talent guy. Earlier, the last couple of weeks, some of the children in the church, the uh, elementary age students, decided they were going to do something in their program where they were going to ask their pastor questions. And so I got a stack of cards in my office that were questions from kind of fourth graders through first graders. And these are some of the questions that I got. Um, How old are you? I had a birthday this last week. I'm 46 years old. Do you live at the church? No, but around Christmas time, it feels like it. 
Do you have any sisters or brothers? Yes, I have a sister. And so if my sister is listening to the broadcast right now, to my sister, I want to say you're good enough, you're smart enough, and nobody likes you. <laughs> Do you still get nervous with you preach? Only every week. Only every week. But there was one question that absolutely broke my heart when I got it. When I got the card, I looked at this one. It said, I don't believe in God perfectly all of the time. Will I still get to go to heaven? Oh, yes, sweet child. There is no such thing as perfect faith. There is such a thing as the perfect love of God. The reason that that question broke my heart is there's a little seed of something that I resemble. There's a little kernel of something that I know that's an epidemic in our society today. You can see it read between the lines of that question. It's called perfectionism. When a perfectionist tries to mow their lawn, this is how they do it. It's an exhausting way to live. Voltaire once said that the perfect is the enemy of the good. When is it good enough? I don't know how many of you watch. In fact, let's take a poll. How many of you watch the show, This Is Us? Anybody like that show? A lot of hands, very popular show. This is Randall Pearson in the show, and he's perfect. He's got the perfect wife. He's got the perfect house, the perfect car, the perfect job, the perfect cute kids. I can't comment on this, but I've heard that he has the perfect body. And Randall is in charge of his whole domain, and he's got it all under his control. He's got it all together. And one time he said this, he said, I don't stop trying to be perfect because if I stop, I might realize that I'm unwanted. Behind that facade of perfectionistic tendencies is someone who's afraid to be alone. There's one moment in the arc of the story where Randall is in the place where he feels most qualified, most capable. He's in a boardroom, he's making a pitch. He's getting it done. He's a dragon slayer at work. And then all of a sudden, his focus narrows. He begins to shake. The words won't come. And all of his efforts at trying to hold it together, to piece everything together by his will and his power to make it perfect, and it all starts to fall in between his fingers like running water, and he can't hold it together anymore, and he ends up on the floor of his office, shaking, crying, and his brother has to come and to hold him. I was watching this episode of This Is Us on an elliptical at the gym. I began to ugly cry. 
I literally had to get off of the elliptical, and I'm like standing next to it, holding on to the elliptical, tears flowing down my face. People were like working out, like, what's wrong with this dude? Because I get it. It's an exhausting way to live. Brene Brown puts it like this, the quest for perfection is exhausting and unrelenting. We all need to feel worthy of love and belonging and our worthiness is on the line when we feel like that we are never blank enough. You can fill in the blank, thin, beautiful, smart, extraordinary, talented, popular, promoted, admired, accomplished. We live in a society that floods us with unattainable expectations around every topic imaginable. Why are we all so afraid to let our true selves be seen and known? Why are we so paralyzed by what other people think? If we want to fully experience love and belonging, we must believe that we are worthy of love and belonging right this minute, as is worthiness doesn't have prerequisites. The guy with one talent approaches life and believes that he is not worthy of what the master has given to him. And so he hides it. He buries it. He sticks it into the ground. He feels like he is worth less. And because of that, he can't share in his master's happiness. His master has already given him so much. What about you? God's given you so much. Prophet Jeremiah says this, they chased after worthless things and became worthless themselves. You are not worthless. But some of us live that way. And when we do, eventually, I can't sugarcoat it. It'll be taken away from you. Brene Brown puts it this way. She says, we have to learn the gift of imperfection. And so what do you do when your mistakes begin to make you shake and make you quake? Maybe you could learn what this artist learned. So when I was in art school, I developed a shake in my hand, and this was the straightest line I could draw. Now, in hindsight, it was actually good for some things, like mixing a can of paint or shaking a Polaroid. But at the time, this was really doomsday. This was, this was the destruction of my dream of becoming an artist. The shake developed out of really a single-minded pursuit of pointillism, just years of making tiny, tiny dots. And eventually, these dots went from being perfectly round to looking more like tadpoles because of the shake. So to compensate, I'd hold the pen tighter, and this progressively made the shake worse, so I'd hold the pen tighter still. And this became a vicious cycle that ended up causing so much pain and joint issues, I had trouble holding anything. And after spending all my life wanting to do art, I left art school, and then I left art completely. But after a few years, I just couldn't stay away from art, and I decided to go to a neurologist about the shake and discovered I had permanent nerve damage. And he actually took one look at my squiggly line and said, well, why don't you just embrace the shake? So I did. I went home, I grabbed a pencil, and I just started letting my hand shake and shake. I was making all these scribble pictures. 
And even though it wasn't the kind of art that I was ultimately passionate about, it felt great. And more importantly, once I embraced the shake, I realized I could still make art. I just had to find a different approach to making the art that I wanted. Now, I still enjoyed the fragmentation of pointillism, seeing these little tiny dots come together to make this unified whole. So I began experimenting with other ways to fragment images where the shake wouldn't affect the work, like dipping my feet in paint and walking on a canvas. Or in a 3D structure consisting of two by fours, creating a 2D image by burning it with a blowtorch. I discovered that if I worked in a larger scale and with bigger materials, my hand really wouldn't hurt. And after having gone from a single approach to art, I ended up having an approach to creativity that completely changed my artistic horizons. This was the first time I'd encountered this idea that embracing the limitation could actually drive creativity. At the time, I was finishing up school, and I was so excited to get a real job and finally afford new art supplies. I had this horrible little set of tools, and I felt like I could do so much more with the supplies I thought an artist was supposed to have. I actually didn't even have a regular pair of scissors. I was using these metal shears until I stole a pair from the office that I worked at. So I got out of school, I got a job, I got a paycheck, I got myself to the art store, and I just went nuts buying supplies. And then when I got home, I sat down and I set myself to test to really try to create something just completely outside of the box. But I sat there for hours, and nothing came to mind. The same thing the next day, and then the next, quickly slipping into a creative slump. And I was in a dark place for a long time, unable to create. And it didn't make any sense, because I was finally able to support my art, and yet I was creatively blank. But as I searched around in the darkness, I realized I was actually paralyzed by all of the choices that I never had before. And it was then that I thought back to my jittery hands, embraced the shake. And I realized if I ever wanted my creativity back, I had to quit trying so hard to think outside of the box and get back into it. I wondered, could you become more creative then by looking for limitations? What if I could only create with a dollar's worth of supplies? At this point, I was spending a lot of my evenings in, well, I guess I still spend a lot of my evenings in Starbucks, but I know you can ask for an extra cup if you want one. So I decided to ask for 50. Surprisingly, they just handed them right over, and then with some pencils I already had, I made this project for only 80 cents. It really became a moment of clarification for me that we need to first be limited in order to become limitless. We need to be limited in order to become limitless. The one talent guy didn't embrace his limitations, and he didn't trust the one who had given it to him. Can I ask you what shakes in your life? What doesn't flow perfectly in line and conform exactly to the way that you want it to? Embrace the shake. Jesus put it this way, don't run from suffering, embrace it. 
follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to finding yourself, your true self. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Embrace the shake. Imagine if you could live within the limits of what God has given to you and not always pine for what wasn't given to you. Imagine what kind of art you would create with your own life if you were able to embrace the shake. You don't have to walk through the halls of life in perfection. You don't have to hold it all together. In fact, there will come a time where if you try to hold on to it too tightly and you try to engineer every outcome, there will come a moment when it all slips through your fingers. And there's one thing, there's one thing that Stuart Smalley got right. You're good enough but not because you say so or because others say so, but because of who Jesus is. And so let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we confess that we have become praise junkies We long for others to tell us what they think because we have forgotten what you think of us, what you have given to us, and what you have created us to be. It's amazing how one little phrase of praise can make such a difference. God, I confess my own fear of failure in this age of anxiety. Help me not to cling to what I don't have, but what I do have. And help each and every one of us to invest instead of being afraid and hiding and digging. Lord, amidst all the questions of our age, we have perfectionistic tendencies. We're afraid to not be perfect because then we might not be loved. And so help us to know of our worth and to long to hear what is already true, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master.